Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. A funny taste in music with Andrew Bird. Hello, welcome to A Funny Taste in Music. This one... Oh, looking forward to this. This is with Ian Stone. Now, Stoney is a comedian I've gigged with for years and years. Um, he's kind of one of them who's like a headliner when I started and I felt a bit intimidated by. Now I think of him as like a proper mate. But before, because he doesn't, he, he gives no, he doesn't stand for any bullshit. I remember once saying to him, I just don't get time to write. I'm just tired. I've got kids. I don't get any time. And he said to me, JK Rowling wrote her books with a child on her lap. And that was it. And I thought, all right, Stoney, Jesus. But I kind of got what he was saying. He doesn't take any shit. There's no excuses with him. I like that about him. But I read his book. He's written a book called To Be Someone. And it's about the jam. It's about his obsession with the jam. But it's not just about that. It's about adolescence and growing up and just loving music. And so I didn't want his to be the first podcast because I thought, well, you know, he's written a book about loving music. It's a bit of a gimme for an interview, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's like asking Gary Lineker about football. It's a bit easy. But I thought, you know, if if this isn't a great podcast, it's my fault. And this is a great podcast, so it's not my fault. Um, it's really great to talk to him about how much he loves the jam. Um, his book is available. It's called To Be Someone. In the link for the description of the podcast, go there. I can't recommend this book enough. I don't read a lot of books, so maybe... You shouldn't really take my word for it, but I know a good one when I read it, I think. And this is bloody brilliant. God, that's a sh- I shouldn't sell people's stuff for them. It'll be absolutely appalled with this, but you've got to buy it. Um, and in the description of this episode, if you click on it, there's a link to Spotify and there'll be a playlist that goes with this. And all the songs we mention 
there'll be a song so you can go straight to it and go, oh, it's brilliant. So you can go straight to that. So that would be great. So this is Ian Stone, and I really, really enjoyed this. Hope you enjoy it. A funny taste in music. The interview next. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Who else have you spoken to? Uh, first one was Jared Christmas. That was a mistake. Um, right. <laughs> right. no, Does really he need good. a mic? You could just open <laughs> his window of his house. You could hear him, surely. Yeah. No, he was really good. But as he said himself, he said he started off by going, I'm not really into a band, but then proceeded to say all the bands he loves. But he just loved, generally loves all loads of music. But um, Great, great. And as then the next be. one was one someone you've probably spoke to about Bands a bit, I imagine. Ben Norris. Kind Only of and Ben around. have discussed music on occasion, yes. In yeah, fact, we've been yeah. to see live music on occasion. Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, that was so that was, um, yeah, it was great. Something like you know, the first uh, single he ever bought, this is a weird one, he was seven in Woolworths, Bohemian Rhapsody at seven. Right. I'm recording, by the way. I just I thought you'd started. So, uh... oh, he does this. He bloody does this. Right. He like he likes a natural start. Yeah. This will be on it. This bit. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to go with it. Really. Yeah. So. I, let's not let's not dabble with professionalism now. Um, just... Right now, this should be uh, Ian because because <laughs> I want what this is as you already probably know is I wanted to do a podcast talking to comedians about music. And because all most comedians love music, and it's funny talking to them about music. And I thought, you know, I'll have to prize out of some comedians what bands they love. Well, you've written a book, a brilliant book called To Be Someone, and it's about your obsession with a jam. So, this podcast should be a piece of piss because you've articulated it absolutely perfectly. So, if it's not, then it's purely my fault. Um, yeah. (laughs) So, now we're going to start off with me praising your book. It's not going to be comfortable for you, so brace yourself, because uh, okay. I absolutely loved it. I read it with uh, <laughs> the stereo on, low in the background with a jam playing, like having Christmas carols on while decorating. I got in the mood and everything while reading it. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yeah. loved it. It's great to hear the tunes again, isn't it? I mean, well, I don't know how oh, much what? you heard them in the first place. Well, not as much because I'm a, like, you know, I don't want to be annoying. I say it like it is. I'm a little bit younger. It wasn't my generation. I didn't grow up with a jam, but I loved the jam when I was younger. Yeah. And, and you know, know all the main songs. I 
don't know as many as I should now that I've read your book realise how many other great songs there are I should know all of them and I don't want you to feel so, like you're deficient in your jam sort of knowledge of the oeuvre just because you know I happen to basically obsess about them for five years and buy every single an album they ever produced but yeah but when I, yeah but they're when they're that good songs, you should yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. But then there's loads of music that there is loads and loads. I mean, I've got people on Twitter who go on about Joni Mitchell. I haven't listened to a huge amount of Joni Mitchell. I probably should. I've got another mate who's a massive fan of Johnny Cash. I yeah. think, well, you know, I know the stuff from Folsom Prison, Prison and that's it. And so, yeah, there's always good other music to catch up on that you don't know about. And I, that's what I hope the book does for the jam that to a certain extent. It does exactly. That's what it is with music, and it? it's a constant game of catch up. You'll never go well. I think I've done everyone's back catalogue now. It's constant. But with your book as well, I tried to time it because I bought it when it came out. Then lockdown happened, which should be a good time to read, but not when you have got two little dicks to homeschool. <laughs> so I didn't get time. Yeah. Didn't get time to read. And then I knew we were having this chat, and I thought, right, I'm going to time it so I finish the book the day before I talk to you. Because it's not often you finish someone's book and then talk to them. It's quite weird talking to you now. I feel like I really know. I feel like I've been with you for a fortnight. Well, that's that's the interesting thing. A lot of people have said to me, oh, they feel like they know me a bit better. Because obviously I, I did talk about some quite dark stuff that went on yeah. in my childhood. And I yeah. wanted it to I wanted to share it uh, with people. And, and um well, that's that's nice. That's nice that you say that because because you want you want the person you you want yourself to come across, don't you? When you when you write something like this, and I feel like it did. So well, it is nice because it means yeah, you've written a really good book, but also at the same time, it suggests you give nothing of yourself in person. <laughs> well, no, no, no. That, do you know what I would say to that? That's funny you say that. I would say that I <laughs> I it, until recently I didn't used to talk about myself on stage very much. No, you didn't. I talked about politics and the news and you know yeah. topical satirical stuff but and it was obviously all filtered through me but I didn't I didn't really talk about my upbringing and my family and I've sort of got the taste for it a bit now so I'm thinking I might be a bit more personal when I when I when we finally come back after this uh, covid stuff yeah well yeah a lot of it as you said it was pretty pretty dark but you made it really funny proper funny but um but that's the thing about the book as well is if anyone's listening to this, like I said, it's called um, To Be Someone. And it, if anyone's like straight away, you must have thought people will go, oh, it's just a book about the jam. But it's not a book about the jam. It's a book about like, like, like I didn't grow up in the 70s listening to the jam. I didn't go to a Jewish school like you. I didn't grow up in London. But it's just, a, to me, it's not a book about that, is it? It's a book about being an adolescence, about being frustrated and angry and an obsession with a band that you love. So the obvious question, I know it's obvious, but for you, why, why was it the jam? Because the Clash were around at the time, the Pistols were kind of around the same time, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, why yeah. specifically I'm, the jam? We were, I, I tend to think, I mean, if you, when, when people read the book, they do see how grim it was in the 1970s. Um, but the music was great. There was a lot of very, very good music around. It was a sort of reaction to prog rock and um, and um, glam rock and what have you. And um, and then suddenly these bands turned up, the Clash, like you say, and the Pistols. Um, why the jam? I don't know. I, I 
I just think that they were the ones that spoke to me. I, I, I was disillusioned, sort of angry kid, really. And, and Paul Weller, who was only four or five years older than me, and is still only four or five years older than me, in <laughs> fact, um, he... He spoke to me in a way that the others didn't. He 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 sang about urban deprivation and social injustice and police brutality and violence on the streets, and those were the things that I was seeing when I was yeah. walking around London, and and it connected with me. Um, I mean, I you know I wasn't alone. There was thousands of us who who felt the same way, but I, I it was good to have someone who was ostensibly an adult, basically articulating the same things that I was thinking. So I heard in the city a song about police brutality and I thought, yes, yes, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing about. And here's someone who's not much older than me articulating it with such brilliant tunes. And um, that's why. I mean, it's not that I didn't like The Clash or The Pistols or Susie and the Banshees or any of the other, you know, The Stranglers, but The Jam were really the ones who just hit me in the side of their head. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's quite. Hard. I know it's a quite a hard question because it's quite hard to put your finger on it, isn't it? Really, but um, it, it's weird as well that he's um he's hit like because you'd have been like fourteen or something, and he was 13, only 14, yeah. he was only a bit. He must have seemed like an adult to you at the time, but he was really young. He was eighteen. So, he was eighteen when he wrote some of these songs, and it's it's unbelievable the songs that he wrote at the age that he wrote them, and. Um, a lot of the kids just went, yes, he's the guy. I mean, I mean, for me, I've sort of talked about this and I came to this conclusion a little bit through talking about the book, was that I, he was a sort of big brother that I never really had, a sort of a male role model. Yeah. When you, when, as you've read the book, you know that my father was, um, you know, he's a lot of things and he's a funny guy, Ken, but he's, <laughs> as I described him, the most useless adult human I've ever met in my life. <laughs> And I needed a male role model, and Paul really was the guy who I sort of latched onto. Right. Yeah, because you were 14 when... Can you describe that again? I love that in the book. Seeing them... you Simon, your friend, who's in the book a lot, yes. was it him who told you about the jam first? He, he mentioned it to me. We went to school together. He was one of my only mates at school. And uh, he kept telling me about this band, The Jam. The Jam. You must go, must see The Jam. They're great. And I'd sort of, I sort of brushed him off a little bit, you know, because I was an idiot. And um, I didn't really know any better. And then I heard, uh, uh, I used to listen to John Peel's show on Radio 1. Um, yeah. And a lot, of, a lot of Radio 1 DJs. Um, you know, Noel Edmonds and, and uh, Dave Lee Travis and all the rest of them. I mean, they were, they were can we say wankers? They were wankers, yeah, yeah. basically. They yeah. were wankers. There's no getting away from it. Uh, full of themselves, pompous, egotistical idiots. And John Peel was not like that. John Peel was, was also quite young and seemed quite cool. And he liked football and not many people like, admitted to liking football so much at that time. And no. he used to play all the punk music, all the new wave stuff and all the, uh, all the stuff that the kids were, were listening to. And he played the jam. And I remember being in my room at 14 and he said, uh, this next one is in the city by the jam. And as soon as I heard that first chord, I thought, oh, this is... This is the band that Simon was talking about. And that so began the um, obsession is not yeah. too strong a word, I think. No, it's not. Not with music, no. But no. you remember seeing them on um, Top of the Pops for the first time. Did you mem- Did you watch that? 
I I I remember seeing them on Top of the Pops. Like they were on. There were a couple of youth programs that were on around that time as well. I got something else maybe was maybe a bit later than that. There were a few, and I remember seeing them a few times. And that's when I started pestering my mum to let me go and see them. But I was only fourteen, and uh, she felt it was a bit worrisome to go into the West End and, at night to the Marquee or something. So she didn't let me go. Um, but I but I listened to the music all the time and and you know thought about them a lot. And when a new single came out, we'd go down to Wild Price Records, bunk off school, and go down to Wild Price Records on Camden High Road and, um, and buy the tunes. We'd bring radios into the, to the uh, to school to listen to the chart show <laughs> on Mondays or Friday or whenever it was. I can't remember. So we'd if they went to number one, I mean, yeah, of course I loved them. I loved them, and they yeah. were, and they and and the thing about the jam as well is they they got better. They got. I mean, I love the early yeah. tunes, but I think the songwriting got better and better, and and so that was a journey I was happy to to you know jump on board for. Yeah, you pestered your mum for ages to go see. It seems ridiculous now. Uh, you know, to be fair, I'm on her side a bit. Fourteen, fifteen, going into London. Especially at that time, with all the violence and all that, there was fights at yeah. gigs all the time, weren't there? Yeah, but the ridiculous thing was that I was going to football all that time. I was going, I was watching <laughs> Arsenal away. You know, I had a, I had a Saturday job um, in in the co-op round the corner, and um, and so when Arsenal were playing, when it wasn't on a Saturday, I'd go and see them away from home. So I'd travel up to Bristol or Stoke or Derby or you know places that hated people from London. Yeah. And um, in a big mob of people, and there'd be violence, and I got knocked down by a police horse in Bristol, and all sorts of other stuff. And and yet my mother and my mother seemed happy for me to go to football on a Saturday, but she wouldn't let me go to town of a of a Friday night to go and see bands. So um, I spent a year and a half sulking, really, being an absolute sit- twat. I can kind of understand though, because football violence seems a little seems a bit more organised, doesn't it? You know it. You know what you're dealing with. You see it on the telly, I suppose, for parents, whether they don't know what they're dealing with with gigs because they've, they've, they've think, seen it. I agree, but I think if my mother had seen what had gone on, what was going on at the football, she wouldn't have let me go there either. Yeah, you know, good point. I mean, I got chased. I got chased three miles back to Lime Street Station. Right, I was wearing a sheepskin coat, and a load of Liverpool <laughs> fans wanted to nick my sheepskin coat. And I swear to you, running three miles in a sheepskin coat. I mean, I was. I, I lost some weight on that, that run. Yeah. I really did. And, um, you know, it was ridiculously dangerous. Cardiff, I remember going to Cardiff, and it was so dangerous. Way more dangerous than gigs, I, I thought. In fact, I knew. But yeah. my mother resisted for quite some time. She let me go in the end, but it took some uh, persuading. Yeah, that first gig, You what I like the way you describe it in the book, you describe a first gig like properly in the book. It doesn't start were then walking on stage when you go see a band for the first time. You describe it right from looking at the tickets. That's where it starts, isn't it? When you get the tickets to see a band for the first time, that's where the excitement starts. Yeah, and you decided what to wear. I wanted to really see if I could have a proper rummage about in my memory and just just take people back to that time as much as I could. Because I think, I think if a book is... is is worth reading. I think it's worth reading because of those, the details, you know, and a number of people have said to me, goodness, how do you remember all this stuff? And I thought, well, with, with great difficulty, but yeah. you know, you, you, you really try and remember the details. And I remember 
that was a huge moment in my life. You know, when Simon says to me, he's got tickets to the music machine, 21st yeah. of December, 1978. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, my first ever indoor gig, you know, because I've been to the Rock Against Racism March. But that was an outdoor thing and that was a slightly different thing. But this is the jam at the music machine. And it was the last day of school, uh, that term. <sighs> and so you can imagine we're bouncing off the walls, all of us. And then, and then going home and putting on, you know, the best sort of mod outfit I could find, and I, yeah, the whole yeah, thing I mean, was was tremendously like exciting. In the book, the deliberation between right, they're going, they're going full suit and park. I'm gonna have to go Harrington jacket. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go Fred Perry t-shirt on this. Yep, I love yep. that. I can imagine that. Well, that's what it was it, like I, when you were a teenager going out, but going to a I see what's the band that you love. I tell you what's interesting, actually. I, I uh, through writing the book, I got to meet uh, Paul Weller, and uh, a very nice chap he is too. And he gave me a lovely quote for the front cover, yeah. Um, uh, which is, I really like this book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the seventies. Bless him. <laughs> it's uh, perfect. It's the first thing he ever said to me. The first hello, Ian. It's Paul Weller, and that's what. And then he said that, and I went, "Can I have it as a quote on the front cover?" And he went, "Yes." But um, could have yeah, hung up, man. That'll do. Uh, that would do. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Paul. That would do me. But but if you talk to Weller for any length of time, clothes are one of his big obsessions. He can remember right. outfit. He can remember shoes he bought when he was 10. He can remember suits and jackets and all the rest of it. Now, I'm not on that level of obsession, but I do like my clothes. And mm. um, I do, I, I, do you know, I, that was one of the big things for me is to what to wear to the gig. I mean, it was a big moment for me. So, yeah, I did. I wanted to write that down and, and let people know. And then the gig itself was um, everything I hoped it would be. Yeah, you described that really. Your first beer as well. What a day. You finished school, seen the jam, your first ever <laughs> beer. What a day. And you got the date for it as well. But I like the what you described really well that I think people, you don't think, I didn't think anyone else noticed that. I like the bit where the lights come up after a support act and you see the roadies setting up for the band you were about to see you see them putting the <laughs> mic stand where it's got all of that you described perfectly i love that and then the soul tunes that were played before oh well i mean i mean that to me i because because there were three other bands you know um uh, there was uh, pogue mahone or the the nipple erectors as they were called then uh, which later became the pogues shame again yeah. in the tutu um the gang of four um uh who were uh, sort of they were they were they were a, a a punk band of sorts but um it, it was a bit more political way more political right. than i was ready for at that point if i'm totally honest with you i'd sort of re-listened to them a little bit lately um and then uh, and then a, a, a sort of rock reggae band called jab jab and then and then they cleared the stage and all that was left were was a drum kit and a couple of uh, mic stands. And I like that very bare sort of stage yeah. that, you know, we're ready for the main event. And also the drum kit was obviously further back because this was the main band on now. And a bit of dry ice. And then they played, and then the lights were, came down and they played these soul tunes. And like I say, Land of a Thousand Dances is always a tune I I, uh, I, really, asso I really associate with the jam. And then yeah. um, John Weller walked out, Paul Weller's dad, walked out and went, please welcome the best fucking band in the world, The Jam. And um, <laughs> on they came. And I was 10 foot from the stage. 
And uh, yeah, yeah, look, I've said this before. It was the most exciting moment of my life. I don't think anything has been... I'm, you know, I'm 15. And um, these are seminal, formative moments, aren't they? Would you put that above as an Arsenal fan uh, by 89 when they won the league in the last minute against Liverpool? Yeah, 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 of course. I mean, I mean... You still put that above? No, it, because different, well, one but... I wasn't at one I wasn't at Anfield, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, winning the league at Anfield in 1989 was an amazing thing, but I wasn't there. I was watching it at my mate Tracy's house with my friend Graham, and um, he was just laughing at me jumping around the, the room, um, yeah. and that was a great moment, of course. But the Jam, this was the first time I'd seen a band live in indoors in a in a venue. Surround, you know, in a in a hot, sweaty venue with a thousand other kids. Um, yeah, of course it was. It, I've never had a moment like that. No, so it's about a thousand. That's a really good size, isn't it, for your first gig? About that, perfect. Yeah, yeah. perfect size. The music machine or Coco, as it's now called. Um, oh, I didn't was a know great... that. Is that what is that? The Coco. I That's didn't know Coco that. in in Mornington Crescent. That's when I first. I've seen there, but I didn't know that it used to be called that. Right. That's yeah, that's yeah, a yeah. Great the venue. music machine. It is a great venue. A lot of great bands have played there. Um, I believe that um, Bon Scott of ACDC uh, had his last evening alive in that venue before he, he sadly drunk himself to death. Um, right. Uh, so it's no, got some history. It's got some music history, uh, that venue. And um, I, I mean, a lot of the bands used to play there. You can look at lineups from 1977, 78. And you'll see Susie and the Banshees and Ian Dury and the Blockheads and the Clash and various other bands. And the Jam played it quite a lot. And that was the first one we went to. That's a great first gig. That And it's walkable, isn't it, from your house, did you say? Not from my house. I I used to go to school at, at uh, Jewish Free School in Camden. So about oh, half a mile right, up yeah. the road on Ca- on Camden Road. And I, I do talk about that quite a bit in the book. But, um, um, yeah, I... I I went home first because I, I couldn't go to the gig in school uniform because we no, probably no, wouldn't no. get served at the bar. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, um, giveaway, so I, I went home, got changed, and then we came out again for the gig, which was a late night gig anyway. It's a great first gig story. I love it. So, um, so then, so then you, you know, you're a massive fan immediately. Well, you already were, and yeah. then. Right, because I didn't, I didn't grow up in the seventies, and you kind of sound really ignorant, but you kind of. Uh, from what you hear from like documentaries and seeing stuff and all that, I don't think it quite from your book, even hearing stuff about the violence in the seventies and how divided it was and Thatcher and, you know, even, even knowing most of that generally, you still don't, you still can't know what it was like. And even reading your books, there was bits I was going, Jesus Christ, (laughs) just violence constantly, wasn't it? Yes. Yes. Well, um, yeah, there was a low level of violence, which was always out there. That's the truth of it. I mean, the book actually starts with a gig, with a Sham 69 gig that I went to in 1979, which is known as Sham's Last Stand, and was yeah. the single most violent thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and I'd also described that in quite quite uh, uh, yeah. a lot of detail at the start of the book. And I know it makes people laugh, but I also think, really, is this what it was like? You know, skinheads doing Nazi salutes and yeah. and and general violence. There was a lot of violence. There was. I, I mean, people didn't get stabbed in the same way that they're doing now. These awful, awful attacks you see now. But the low level danger that was that was really always out there. Um, was something that you learned to live with. And um, but I I did want to make sure that people. I didn't want to um, 
I don't know. I didn't want to sugarcoat it. That's all. No. And I think, and I, I don't think I did. No. And the um, at the time, the sort of um, was you because you were like sort of 15, 14, 15, 16, that kind of age. Was you like the really political songs, the jam? And he and the thing with Paul Weller as well is he sings so quick. He has to write more lyrics, I think, because he sings so quick <laughs> to get yeah. more in. And yeah. It's not until you sort of really you have to really listen to them and realize Jesus Christ how much is in them. Was you yeah. like was you at that young age because you were young? Was you aware of what he was singing about, or were they to you really catchy tunes? Or was you like eating rifles and going underground? Was you aware of the politics of it? Well, I mean, time? when you hear when you hear a tune, say I don't know, like going underground, and you'll see kidney machines replaced by rockets and guns, right? Yeah, that's 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 a line that will stay with you. And I remember at the time, yeah, being very struck by, blimey, that's not, you know, that that's really something, um, and and that that sort of accorded with where my politics were going. You know, like I said, I'd been on the Rock Against Racism march the year before, so I was certainly leaning leftwards, you know, yeah. uh, politically, and and most of the musicians and bands that I liked also seemed to be leaning the same way. You know, the whole thing was a reaction. Rock Against Racism was a reaction to Eric Clapton coming up with some awful racist, some awful racist rant on stage in about 1972. And so people thought, no, we have to, the younger musicians have to maybe change this. And Paul was certainly part of that, was really at the vanguard of that sort of thinking. So was I aware? Not fully, not fully. I mean, I mean, writing this book and re-listening to the lyrics in my 50s, I... I, I I was still, I was like you, I was a little bit struck by thinking, wow, there, there's a lot of stuff in there that I maybe wasn't totally aware of. But I got the general gist, do you know? Yeah. Well, I got the well, general yeah, really, gist. Yeah, well, yeah, as a, even in your 40s and 50s when you read lines like, in going underground, going underground, but, uh, but I want nothing this society has got. I mean, he can't yeah. say it a lot clearer than that, can he? Yeah. Yeah, no, he was um, he was pretty clear that he wasn't very impressed. I always, I mean, I talk about Paul and how he feels about this country. I've always felt that he was quite patriotic, and I always felt that patriotism, to a certain extent, got a bad name, really. Yeah, because it was wrapped up with the flag of St George, and 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 there were quite a lot of racists would call themselves patriotic. But I, I would sort of try and maybe differentiate between patriotism and nationalism. Basically, yes. and I, I, I don't think that Paul, I think that Paul would was quite would be quite a proud Brit, maybe a proud Englishman, but he wouldn't have liked what was going on um, in the country. And Thatcher, when Thatcher came along in '79, that was certainly a, she was someone that we could all go, oh yeah, she's the sort of Brit that we don't like, and we don't like her policies or her way of thinking. So. Was I fully politically engaged at sixteen? No, but I certainly there was certainly the first stirrings when I when I heard those songs that would have helped me think about that stuff in a way that I wouldn't have done without those songs. Yeah, he, he sort of properly um, he, he articulated it that you probably wouldn't be able to at that age. None of us could at that age, could we? But, no, because um, no. going underground came out ten months after Thatcher came into power. I read. I can't imagine. Uh, I mean, hearing that song now hits you in the gut. At the time, was yeah. it like here when you first heard "Going Underground"? Do you remember? Um, well, I when I first heard it, um, I mean, I I mean, it it was a powerful song, 
And when you see the video for going underground with yeah. nuclear explosions and, and the pictures of world leaders, villains, some of them, and Thatcher was amongst them, um, it was a powerful song. Um, and and, and it, it really captured the imagination of a lot of kids, really. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's one of my favourite jam tunes. And it's, it's, I still think it's as powerful today as it was uh, when I first heard it. Yeah, it is. It is, definitely. And it went straight to number one, which doesn't yeah. sound that big a deal now because that's what big songs kind of do now. But at that time, you went in at sort of, what, number six and then crept up to number one. So for about, even like ABBA didn't go to number one, really. So the jam, that must have been weird, <laughs> weren't it? As a massive well, fan, it must have been like seeing Arsenal win the Champions League or something. Well, the thing was, I mean, not so much we go in underground, but certainly when Town Called Malice uh, came out, I, there was a certain resentment on my part, you know, with all the new yeah, fans. Like um, I mean, it's weird. I mean, have you? We've all been watching CNN the last few weeks with with Donald Trump and the election, right? But yeah. the truth is, I'm, I'm looking on Twitter and everyone going on about CNN, and I'm thinking I was watching CNN eight years ago, right? I watched CNN where Obama got elected. Where were you then? And I <laughs> and I sort of resent all these new CNN fans, and I sort of felt the same way about all the new Jam fans when A Town Called Malice came out, and I was moaning to Simon and Warren, my two mates who who travel with me a lot on this book. You know, yeah. where were the where were these people like three years ago? They didn't come to the Hope at Anchor or the Marquee or any of these clubs. Where where were they? And um, obviously, it's ridiculous. But you get a certain proprietorial ownership feeling yes. with bands, and I certainly exactly did it. with them. And 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 um, you know, in the I mean, in the end, it doesn't matter. They were still they were still my band. They just weren't mine. They were everybody's by that point. Yeah, I know it's a weird line, isn't it? Where you want, you want everyone like, why well, doesn't everyone know how brilliant they are? Everyone should love them, and then when they do, you're like, well, yeah, but they're mine. They're mine. Yeah, yeah. Cool. You say in the cool. book, per it's a perfect point, and there should be something put in, some policy put in with bands that you get priority queue for the lot the fans that are into the band from the start. You should get a priority queue for buying tickets. What you well, said in the book, there should be a different I, I, queue for the long-term fans. You're right. I have a lot of, I have quite a lot of views which are sort of similar to that. In the same way that when, um, when a major event happens in the world, I think comedians and and people who do this stuff for a living should be given an hour on Twitter when only we're allowed <laughs> to tweet about it. And then it's yeah. like a sort of, it's like it's like the tape that the police put around a crime scene where nothing, yeah. you can't go in there yet. Comedians are at work coming up with the best gags for this particular scenario. And then after an hour, everyone has to go. But, and I, uh, <laughs> I know it's selfish, but, you know, I just, that's just how I feel. And I certainly, yes, priority boarding, I suppose you'd call it for the band, yeah. really. And, priority because of, you're right. But, yeah, because, well, in the same way that we cut final tickets, the way we got cut final tickets was, uh, have you been to all the home games? And now you have to go to all the away games as well. Then you get away credits and then you get, then you get first dibs. And that's sort of how it should be with bands as well, in my opinion. But, you know, nobody else thinks well, that. Well, I'm, so what are you I'm willing do? to sign this petition when you start it, Ian. Yeah, we haven't got enough petitions, have we? That's the thing. No, not enough. enough. One a week. Or podcasts, yeah. that's why I've started. Or podcasts. That's the other yeah. thing we need, podcasts. Yeah, yeah, more of them. Um, and I was going to ask you about your friend Simon. He told you about the comedy store as well? Yeah, yeah, no, he's been a really what helpful, a guiding light. What a good man. What a good man. I told you about he, um, the jam and the comedy store. What a friend. 
<laughs> yeah, also, by the way, used to phone round and make sure that 11 players turned up on a Sunday for us to play football. Which, oh, you know... I like this guy. No, no, no. Listen, he's... Um, He's very organised in all sorts of ways, Simon. And I, I do say in the book, everyone needs a Simon. And I'm yeah. still mates with him. I'm still mates. I, work, I, I write with him sometimes, and he's a good man. Really? But he, yeah, but he, uh, oh, he's a funny boy. He's a very, very funny boy. And he, um, yeah, he went down to the comedy store and then said to me, we've got to go to this place. That was in 1979. But that's when he put my name down for the audience spot. And um, Yeah, I went off him a bit. Then. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was not my uh, my best night of comedy. I'll be honest with you. As a but, comedian, um, I went off him a lot. Then he signed you up for an open <laughs> spot when you were watching and drunk. That's oh, I don't know. If, well, <laughs> well, he's got a lot was, of credit to be fair. Or got quite you know, a lot of credit in the bank. You yeah. know that's true, but uh, yeah, he did put me down for the audience spot, and I and I, I re- when they read my name out at three in the morning, the next up, <sighs> Ian Stone. I, I thought you had to, and I went up there and died horribly, and uh, yeah, did um, would. two lepers walking down the street. How are you? Mustn't crumble, <coughs> and got booed. It's fair enough. Got booed off, and um, well, the weird thing was that twelve years later, when I went to do my proper first open spot at the comedy store, Don Ward, the owner of the comedy store, came up to me and went, "I know you." Uh, I said, I, I don't think we've met. He said, you, you've been down here before. And I said, oh, I used to come down here and watch all the time. You probably see me in the audience. He said, no, you've been on stage. I went, that was 12 years ago. I did a five-minute open spot. How do you remember that? He goes, the nose. I remember the nose. <laughs> and I, uh, it was I very funny. I imagine him saying that very matter-of-fact yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't take it personally. And, uh, no. and um, uh, yeah. So it, that was weird. That was weird. But, um, yeah, to go down there, that that's the thing. Again, you know, the, the alternative comedy scene in 1979 when it started had a yeah. bit of the spirit of the punk movement about That's it. That's what I was going to you know? ask you. Yeah, it seemed to be quite interwoven. Like, the jam seemed like... like Because they still play the jam. Um, the, is it the first song when the gig ends? They play the jam uh, at the comedy store. Some, I think Simon, Simon, who who's the, uh, uh, the manager and does the sound down there, um, uh, he does it for me. I ask him sometimes. He plays going oh, underground. That must have been just and, when I've been on with you then. <laughs> yeah, it's possi- It's a possibility. But, yeah, no, no, those tunes are still, I think they're still relevant today and he still plays them and that's great. But, but um, yeah, that was a big moment for me. Yeah, when you watch um, documentaries about, like, uh, there's been, like, celebrations of the comedy store and stuff like that, and when you watch that, they always play the jam because it seemed like that was the music of that. Because in 1979, when the comedy store started, Rick Mail, you saw Rick Mail and everyone down there. They, they, Rick Mail and Aid Edmondson looked like they could have been in a band at the time, and it was a lot yes. of anti-factor. Does it seem like that in your head, quite interwoven, the comedy store and the jam and the comedy music of the late um, 70s? Like I, like I say, the, the, the alternative comedy movement, as it was called back then, it did have a bit of a, a punk ethic about it. Up to that point, you yeah. had men in frilly shirts, mainly men, on the comedians telling jokes about mother-in-laws and things like that. And that is a massive generalisation because there were some brilliant comics and I used to love Les Dawson and Ken Dodd and a few of the others. Um, yeah. But the difference, the, the, the sort of punk ethic and and the you just put together your own stuff and go on stage that is what the comedy store had in the early days and um yeah look i was 16 17 years old and it was exciting to be out and about in london going to see gigs and going to see comedy gigs and uh, I, I and there were, and and in terms of the um, the politics 
Yeah, it was it was very left wing. There was a lot of anti Thatcher stuff, and again, I used to feel I used to agree with that stuff, and so I was happy to go along and listen to um, Alexis Sale ranting about, or, or <laughs> Jim Barkley, or any of these guys in the early days ranting about Thatcher. It was um, something I agreed with. So, and 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 they were funny sometimes. Yeah, and then when you uh, went to see the Jam, the thing I liked. About the how many sort of roughly how many times do you think you saw them? Thirty something, thirty two, thirty three, something Brilliant. like that. But yeah. what I like that I've I've heard sort of stories slightly similar, but not as much. That you said that you used to go and see them as a band. I didn't know this that they'd just sort of pop out and chat to the audience before the gig, and they'd let you in for the sound check sometimes. Yeah, well, John Weller was Paul's dad, and we well, there was a certain group of us who used to go to gigs quite a lot. Um, we turn up at the stage door at three or four in the afternoon in Manchester or Birmingham or, or in London sometimes. And John would pop his head out. Hello, lads. Hello, John. How are you? Chat, chat. And because they knew us a little bit, we got to know the bouncers and not the bouncers, the um, the roadies a little bit. Yeah. And I remember on a cold afternoon one time, John popped out. He said, it was chilly, lads. You want a cup of tea? And he made us all a cup of tea and he invited us in and we watched the boys do a sound check. And yeah, there were a couple of hundred of us who came in and watched the sound check. And um, I mean, that, as I remember it, that's the first time I saw Eaton Rifles in a sound check that the boys walked out and they were tuning up and then they went, oh, this is a new one. And they played Eaton Rifles for us in the sound wow. check. And, and you do not get that with other bands. I mean, well, no. maybe you do. I don't know. But that it's connection. Quite rare. I've not heard uh, of it. I think so. You know, that connect. Well, I've said this before, but, but John Weller made me one more cup of tea than my dad ever did. That's a brilliant so, line. You know, um, and um, yeah, that, that connection. So so I, I've got I've got pictures of, of me and a few mates sort of around Paul after the gig. We used to hang about after the gig and they'd sign autographs and chat to us. Um, I mean, I don't think they were particularly deep chats, but they were, uh, it was, you know, you, you felt you felt blessed, really, to stand there and, and uh, the boys had come out and chat to us. So, yeah, there was a real connection. There was a real connection. And I don't, I, like I say, I'm not sure there's many bands who do that. No, well, you, you sort of know because you saw a lot, so I try to make a list of the bands you saw. It's unbelievable. I mean, you'd seen you'd seen the Clash, the Pogues, and the Jam by the age of fifteen. Don't know if you uh, remember that in the book. And Tom and Tom Robinson, and uh, and Steel Pulse, and <laughs> Sham Sham sixty nine. There was a couple of others at the Rock Against Racism march as well. But yeah, I saw a lot of live music. Um, yeah, you saw uh, Dex's Midnight Runners. Oh, you saw I the Undertones. Yeah. Iggy Pop. You saw the U2 support the jam at the marquee? No, not the U2. jam. I saw, saw U2. U2. No, not, not the jam. They supported the Photos, who was oh. a, a, a band. Oh. They were a band. Um, the lead singer was a, was a very beautiful woman called Wendy Wu, and they had, a, they had one hit with Irene, uh, and, and they were on, and, and the support band were U2. Um, <laughs> you saw the U2 I, as a support band. I know. I saw Status Quo uh, quite in 1979, I think. Because yeah. I wasn't just—I mean, as much as I like the punk stuff, I mean, I saw, I, I saw Motorhead um, and uh, Stafford Bingley Hall. Oh, you hitchhiked! That's a I brilliant did. story. That I you did. Hitchhiked. I hitchhiked on a motorbike. Stafford. Yeah, yeah. I, I was—I was very lucky. I um, we we lived in West Hendon at the time, and I, I yeah. said to my mum, "I'm going. I'm going to a gig," and off I went about two in the afternoon, and I walked about half a mile down to Brent Cross where the M1 started. 
and I stuck yeah. my finger out on my thumb and after about 10 minutes this bloke in a motorbike pulled up <laughs> and he goes to me where are you going mate and I said uh, I'm going to see Motorhead at Stafford Binley Hall can you get me close and he turned round and he had Motorhead on the back of his um, <laughs> on the back of his leather jacket he goes you're in look mate and he gave me a helmet and uh, we, I jumped on the bike and he gave me a lift to Stafford Binley Hall I've no idea I got home but um, I listen live music is I mean, I love live comedy, right? I do live comedy. I think it's an amazing thing. But live music, to me, is transcendent. I can't really describe it. And, I, you know, I was at Glastonbury last year and I saw some amazing stuff. And I, I, think, I, th- I think there's nothing like it. It's what, to be honest, Andrew, gives me hope for the future, that I think those communal things that we all, we all love being together, enjoying an artist. And yeah. I think that is what is going to bring us back together. The arts, it's going to heal us after this COVID shit. And yes, and I absolutely love live music and I always have. And so, you know, any chance to get out of the house. So I went to see whoever I could. There was, no, yeah, there's nothing quite like being at a live gig when the lead singer sort of puts the mic out and the whole crowd sings a song. Oh, yeah, that, there's mate, something like that, isn't there? I saw Queen at the Rainbow in 1979, right? And seeing Freddie, who's the most amazing front man you'll ever see, uh, leading us all in, in you know, in uh, uh, various songs, and we're all singing along. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, a, it's very beautiful and very moving. And at the end of it, you feel like, I don't know, you, you feel, God, this is going to sound a little bit zen, but you feel at one, don't you, with everyone when you see things well, the like that. The whole room of people talk, uh, singing together. You definitely do, yeah. Yeah. So, Unbelievable uh, feeling. It, it's a great feeling. So I wanted to get that feeling whenever I could. And so, yeah. you know, uh, and like I say, anything to get me out of the house. So, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> two birds book, with one stone. You saw Queen, you said in the book, in a week, you saw the jam three times, Queen and the police. Yes, in, yes, five nights in a row at the Rainbow Theatre. Did you, you didn't go to see, the Ars- uh, see Arsenal that week as well, did you? Very Surely probably. Not. Very probably. It was December <laughs> 79. I mean, I, well, I was out of the house a lot, but I also spent pretty much my entire life in Finsbury Park, really, because yeah. it was all round there. I mean, I, that is a venue that I know better than almost any other venue, and, I, and I'm really sad that it's not still a music venue. It's now, it's now a, a, a sort of um, Christian Baptist sort of house or something, um, but it doesn't. it's not a live music venue anymore, and it's such a shame because it's a great venue. And I... And I yeah, we used to look up who was on and then buy tickets and just go down there. And we had, that was a good week. I enjoyed that week. Yeah, sounds like a good week. I've never been, yeah. obviously, I've never been. Was it called the Rainbow Rooms? The Rain, Rainbow Theatre. The Rainbow Theatre. I've never, I've, when did that shut? Cause I, um, it, I've, I've never I think it would have shut maybe 1990, something like that. Right. Um, I, the thing about live music is, I don't know, I think the festivals started getting going by, at that point. In a, in a yeah. big way. And I think more people get their live music fix at festivals now. So there are less venues than there used to be. And I, I think that's a terrible shame. But So when, when live music made a sort of comeback in terms of venues, the Rainbow Theatre was already owned by, um, you know, him upstairs. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he doesn't relinquish venues that easily, does he? So, um, no, he's, he's not getting the numbers in either. He, he, well, that was the thing. I always thought that some of the bands I saw would have pulled bigger numbers, but hey, what do I know? <laughs> so it, it's, um, yeah, it's a terrible shame um, uh, what happened, but um, I, I love What's, that venue. 
What are some of the venues that you miss around London, or some of the your still your favourites that that you? Because uh, you you met you talk about the Hammersmith Odeon, but people yes. would know that as the Apollo. Yes, the Apollo. Now, yes. yeah, uh, like you, you talked about uh, sneaking in, climbing up to the roof. I yeah, we went to see the police, and we couldn't. We didn't have tickets, and we um, and I, I ended up climbing up onto the roof with about seven people following me. I don't know why they were following me, but, yeah, I ended up on the roof and we, I went through a door and the police had just come on when we when we managed to get in, but we couldn't find a way downstairs and then somebody was shining a torch at us, a torch at us going, what the hell are you doing up here? <laughs> and uh, we, um, we, got, we got brought down off the roof like the idiots we were, 16-year-olds climbing about on the roof at Hammersmith, uh, Hammersmith Odeon. And then somebody leant against the door and it fell in and we all jumped in and we got in to see the gig, which was, um, which was great. Um, yeah, I just wanted to see live music. By the way, I've looked up the Arsenal fixtures for December 1979. Um, <laughs> I think that week we had Norwich at home. I'd have gone to that. I was going to every game. <laughs> so I, I would have been... I love the way I'd have gone to that. see... The Jam three times, the Police, Queen and Arsenal at home to Norwich. 1-1. One, one. It was, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you've cleared you know, that up. Context, I think. It's very yeah, important. yeah. God, you were committed. I mean, um, yeah. And you, and you Because tra- you travelled around. Because before doing gigs, the amount we travel as comedians, you'd already done that before you even started stand-up because you're watching Arsenal everywhere. You you travel around watching the jam everywhere. You went to Brighton yeah. the year after Quadrophenia. That yeah. must have been like quite a good atmosphere. I like the story of it. Was it Robert there who oh. decided to ring his parents because he'd not told them he'd gone down to Brighton? Yeah, yeah, that was a bit unfortunate. We were four of us went down, uh, or three of us, and then we met Warren, who was our other mate. And then Robert decided to call his his parents, and his parents demanded that he come home. So he went, he, he, we sold the ticket, his ticket, and he went home. And we all laughed at him, but, you know, I'm, not, I'm really not sure why he called his mum at all. But anyway, the thing is, I, I told my parents or my mother at the time that I was, um, that I was going, so she knew, yeah. but Robert obviously didn't. And um, he ended up having to come home. But um, his loss, it was Brighton, oh. you know. We had to go and see the jam in Brighton. That was like, yeah. that, was, that was analogous to me, uh, as a Jewish person going to the Wailing Wall for the first time, right? It was that sort of religious <laughs> yeah. experience. Yeah. Only I, I actually believed in the jam, you know. And, yeah. Uh, and um, yeah, I've, we'd seen Quadrophenia, so we hung out on Brighton Beach. I've been to Brighton before. I had been down there. Um, to, I can't remember if it was to see football, but I'd definitely been to Brighton before. Day trip, maybe. But I did travel around the country quite a bit. Yeah, of course. I um you know, if I could get tickets to see him in Manchester or Birmingham or Paul, I remember going to, Reading, um, I would. Because, you know, why not? Yeah. And then you went to the hotel. You found out where the hotel was and you were getting kicked out. And uh, Paul Weller said the the immortal words, they're with a band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, don't, don't worry. Don't kick these, out, these lads out. They're with us. And then oh. we went. I was with, that was the first time I was ever with the band. We weren't with the band. We were just in the hotel lobby. Uh, so in yeah. the hotel bar. But um, it was nice Waiting of him to do that. for the band. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was very nice of him to do that. He didn't have to do that. But he, like I say, he cared about his young fans. He did. And, um, you know, he was protective of us. And, and um, 
that's something, right? Yeah, yeah. The last so the last time you saw them was uh, I think it was a radio recording at the Golders um, Green Hippodrome. Yeah, they were doing a, a recording for a TV show or radio show, and you went to see them. And that was uh, about fifteen minutes from where you lived, or something. So you sort of started, saw them near near where you grew up, followed them all around the country. And then the last time you see them is a, <laughs> I think it was a recording yes. of a TV show or radio show near your house. Yeah, and you went to see them, and you ended up in McDonald's with some members of Banana Rama. Yes, and the lead singer, and the lead singer of Department S. Uh, who were a band who had one hit called Is Vic There? Um, and they were supporting the jam. And, and he came out after the gig. I can't think of his name. Vaughan Toulouse. I can't think of his name. Vaughan Toulouse, which I only just got the pun now, 40 years later. <laughs> 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 you know what? That is, that is really... Wow, what a moment that was. Anyway, oh, he, Vaughan Toulouse. He played the long game with a few of he us, did. didn't he? He did. He's sadly <laughs> no longer with us. I'd love to be able to tell him. But, um, yes, he came out and he was, and a couple of members of Banana Rama were there because I think he was going out with one of them. And they said, does right. anyone know anywhere to eat round here? And I said says, I, I just happened to be nearby. I said, there's a McDonald's over there. I said, should we go? And they went, yeah. So we all went to McDonald's with uh, me yeah, and Shivon Fahi, and, and a, who was in Banana Armour and one of the others, and Vaughan Toulouse. And um, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> I was going to say it was one of the most exciting moments of my life, but it wasn't really. We'd just had burger and fries and a milkshake, you know, but it was nice enough. Yeah, it sounds like a weird dream that no one's going to believe when you describe that in the morning. Um, yeah. A McDonald's with some of banana rama. Um, two and, out uh, of three, two thirds, sixty-six and a half percent of banana rama, and that's, the that's lead singer enough. of Department S. Yeah, that's enough for a McDonald's, isn't it? I would Can't say ask for more than that. Yeah, and then so the last, the last single was it? The last single number one, Town Called Malice. Um, and then the, they split up. Not long after that, about eight months after that or something? I don't think, I think. I don't think Town, Town Called Mouse was the last single. I'm not totally sure, to be honest with you. I've never been, as much as I obsessed about the band and I love listening to them, I've never been one of these guys who knows what the set list was at a particular gig or when singles no. came out. I had to look all this stuff up beforehand. Oh, so I, I, haven't, I haven't had any angry, irate phone calls or messages from jam fans saying, you got that completely wrong, that was a year. Because <laughs> I thought, I don't need... So I, I looked it up, but it's not something I ever knew. But they decided to split up, yeah. And and you, I mean, because well, as a, I've got to say, as a as a a fan of a band, you were pretty spoiled. Five years. They now I looked this up because I knew it was a lot of singles because I've heard it, but I didn't know the exact amount. So I looked it up. They've released. Is this right? Seventeen singles. You tell and me. Six albums in five years. Jesus, um, some bands take some five years yeah. to release one album. Yeah, so you you were absolutely smashed over the head for five years, non-stop music, and then bang, it finished. What what was that like? That must have been. Well, it it was painful. You weren't softened up for it at all because a lot no. of bands you see them slowly peter out. You can sense it's coming. They haven't released an album in years. They were number one, loads of albums, and then suddenly finished. It was upsetting, Birdie, to be honest with you. It was, um, I mean, you know, I was, I was, I relied on them really to a certain extent for, for some sort of guidance as to, as to how to, 
you know, what to think and how to live my life. And um, when they split, I was 19 years old and it, it was um, it was a shock. But um, I'm over it now, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's taken me 40 years. No, it was, you know what? I think there are times when you... You know, it was, as people say, my formative years. And, and um, you know, I, you're looking for help from from a, a responsible adult. And I wasn't yeah. really getting it from my parents, but Paul provided that. So when he suddenly went, you're on your own, he didn't phone me personally and say that. <laughs> but when, he, when it was, you're on your own, I, I did feel a bit lost, certainly. Um, yeah. And, and... That continued for quite some time, but you know, you find other things. It's why I didn't listen to the Stoll Council very much because I was too angry, if you like. And, yeah. and the Stoll Council also did not suit my mood at the no. time. That sort of preppy, light, more soulful stuff. I wasn't, I didn't want to listen to that. I wanted to listen to um, angry songs about um, Thatcher and police brutality and all the rest of it. And um, so, yeah. you know, Paul wasn't there for me anymore, but. I totally understand from his point of view now, as an artist, you just go, all right, next, next thing, next thing. But at yeah. the time, I was very upset, yes. It must have been like seeing an ex with a new boyfriend. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I suppose there was a little bit of that, really. I just, I, I listen, you know what? At some point, you've got to move on with your life, haven't you? And, and he's, yeah. I was 19, he went, you're on your own, mate. Go on. And yeah. um, I think five years is enough. Um, I also like the fact that they quit while they were very much ahead. You don't get that very often. No, and, you, didn't, um, you didn't get to see them sort of, you know, slowly no. deteriorating and releasing bad albums. You didn't get any of that. No, they just, they did their thing and then they went, that'll do. And and what what an amazing thing to do. And they're never going to reform. And I like that about them as well. Yeah, to be that's honest good. With you. <clears throat> you yeah, know? I like that. That's good. Well, um, they, interviewed, they interviewed them on Sky Arts for their some um, documentary and um they asked the other two they asked bruce and rick would you you know you think about reforming and they both went yeah if, you know if the time's right and we feel like we want to do it then that'd be great and they asked paul weller and he looked at the camera and he went no fucking way and i thought <laughs> good on you mate good on you yeah. it was a, it was of its time we loved it at the time and um, I'm just happy to listen to the tunes, really. And I yeah. saw Weller, I saw Weller live a couple of years ago, and he did a couple of jam tunes, and that was fine. That was fine. It was nice to That's hear. All them. you need, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like visiting old friends. So yeah. why, why do you think? Because, because like, you can. I, after reading the book, like I don't know if I knew you were a massive jam fan before, but as soon as I saw that you'd written a book, it all I kind of went, oh, of course, it's kind yeah. of made sense, and. Because like you say, like you're not, I wouldn't say you're massively political on stage, but you can tell when you're on stage, you can tell you've read a paper in the last week. Do you know what yeah. I mean? You can tell it's informed you a lot. Now there's, um, you know, again, there's political unrest, there's, you know, Brexit, all of that. Before COVID, all of that. Tory government, not most people don't like. Why do you think there's not like a band like The Jam around now? I mean, I think the music is political now. I just don't think it's 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 not the same. I mean, it, it's maybe not for people of my age or even your age, to be honest with you. But, you right. know, Stormzy was at Glastonbury a couple of years ago, and um, that's political. That's, yeah. you know, grime is definitely political. Um, so I think there is 
stuff out there, but I'm not sure it's stuff that I would necessarily uh, listen to that much or connect with that much. Um, so I, 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 I'm not sure I accept the premise of the question. I think, I think music is still political, um, it, certainly for some people. Certainly. Yeah, it's just not in that now it's more kind of grime. It's not you don't get one definitive band like you kind no. of used to. No, it's more. different. Music is very different now. It's much more yeah. sort of diffuse really. It's it, you know, so people will find their own audiences. There are people who are I mean, I my son went to Reading Festival a couple of years ago. Yeah. I didn't know half the artists on there, but these are people who've sold half a million they've had a couple of you know billion downloads and they've sold all sorts of merch and all the rest of it. And and um they're just as popular as as the jam were back in the day, but it's a it's a very different uh, industry now, and um, so I think there's a, there's probably all sorts of political stuff out there that I'm not aware of. Yeah, well, it's kind of like uh, I suppose I don't, like I don't know any any sort of modern bands and that because and a lot like you say is a lot of it's all over YouTube, Spotify, everywhere. But when you know, even when I was younger, it was just top of the pops. Yeah, John Peel, and that that was it. So if there was a big band, everyone test. knew. Old yeah. Grey Whistle Test was the only other one, and that that's about it. Whereas now, you know, you've got twenty five music channels uh, yeah. at your disposal, and Spotify means you've got pretty much every bit of music ever ever written, if you want, and iTunes and all the rest of it. So, um, I think I think there are plenty of politicised uh, singers and uh, and and uh, and bands out there, but. Um, it's possible that I'm not aware of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> do you know? Do you uh, do you know any of the bands that you're? How old are your sons? Uh, Twenty two and eighteen. All right. So, do you know any of the music they're into? Have they told you about any of it, or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it's great, and it's not just the stuff that my kids bring me. I watched. I, I was it. I will destroy you. Um, the Mi- Michaela Cole thing um, on uh, on BBC, and the music in that was great. There was some great music in there that I'd never heard. Every year you get FIFA. When you get FIFA on uh, on the Xbox, there's a whole right. playlist and you hear all these tunes. You think, oh, I like that one. That's a good I one. That's where you're getting your new music through FIFA. Some of it. Some of it. Sometimes I yeah. listen to Six Music. There's all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts yeah. of outlets. And my kids do bring me stuff from time to time. Um, and some of it I like and some of it I don't. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, if you... Um, so at the end of the book, have you seen? So you've seen you see Simon quite mm. a lot still, and Robert and Warren. Yes, yes, I still I speak like I know to your Robert friends a bit as well. Yeah, well, do you, um, yeah. Do you go and see live music with them still? You said you did with Simon. With them, not so much actually. I don't. I mean, I mean, it's like I go. I mean, I, I went to Glastonbury last year, and I and I, in fact, I go there quite regularly um, when I get the chance you know, when it's on and, um, yeah. you know, I saw, um, and you see all sorts of different stuff there as well. And it's, um, as I said to you earlier, seeing live music is such a blast. It really is. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I, um, uh, my appreciate, my appreciation of it hasn't really faded. It's, it's still, it's still the same feeling that I get. I saw, I saw Lizzo at Glastonbury last year and I'm not, it's not, R and B is not really my thing. But she blew me away. The the show that she gave. I saw I saw Beyonce there seven or eight years ago. One of the best yeah. things I've ever seen. It's um, really. It's just seeing people who are at the top of their game, 
I know a yeah. couple of songs from Beyonce, right? I knew Crazy in Love, which I think is an absolutely fantastic song. And to see her do that live um, was really a thrill. So it continues to, um, to thrill me and to, um, uh, to make me feel happy. That is and, good to hear. Um, as, long as, as long as that goes on, I'll, I'll continue to listen to it. Yeah, and at, at the end of the book as well, that I wanted to, you don't have to, you have to tell me anything he said, but oh, what a great ending that you got a phone call from Paul Weller at the end. Yeah. How did that, how did that happen? How did, how was that? A mutual friend. Just, yeah. A mutual got friend. Got the book to him. Yes. I, I said to our mutual friend, uh, can you, um, you know Paul Weller, don't you? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, can you get the uh, for a sort of early draft of the book to him? He said, of course. So I printed it all out and I and I got um and I got and I bound it together as best I could and I and I picked out a very nice card and I wrote a nice message in the card. I spent a long time on this, you know, just, just uh, a little little drop of uh, aftershave. You thought you might like <laughs> scent, scent, that's right. yeah. and um um. And I sent it to via our friend to Paul, and then my yeah. friend was sending me back uh, screenshots of text messages from Paul saying, "I love your mate's book. I'm going to call him," oh, which is brilliant. great. And then he phoned me up, and he said, "Hi, Ian. It's Paul Weller," and I wanted to go. I know, <laughs> I know. Of course, I know it's you. I recognise your voice anywhere. But I just went, "Oh, hey, Paul. How you doing?" Like he phones me all the time. And yeah. uh, and he, that's the first thing he said to me was, I really like your book. I'd forgotten how shit it was in the 70s. And I said, oh, man, can I use that as a quote on the front cover? And he said, yeah, of course. And then we spoke for about 45 minutes about that time and about the music and about the violence and about where I grew up and where he grew up and his old man. And it was great. And I, I've since met him um, a couple of times. I, I, I had a long chat with him for, for about clothes for a magazine. I wrote a piece. And I met him. I had a bite to eat with him before a gig, and um, <laughs> yeah, he's um, yeah. In fact, he phoned, when he phoned me up last time, he went, "All right, Stony, how's the book going?" Is what he said, and I thought, "Wow, Stony, Stony, I know, Stony, it's, being it's Stony lovely. by Paul Weller. It's lovely, isn't it? And and oh, and what a great end! It's it's that a must lovely have made thing. the book worthwhile. I mean, it would have been worthwhile well, anyway. But what a great what a great uh, reward for writing that book. It's a lovely, it's a lovely thing. I mean, he's, he he keeps saying he wants to come to a gig, which is good. You know, that's another level altogether. But um, yeah. you know, uh, he. I mean, hopefully we'll be able to arrange that at some point. And um, listen, it's it's nice. I, I've I've got to know him a little bit. He's a good guy, and um, he likes what I did. And obviously, I loved what he did. And so, you know, there's a bit of mutual respect there. It's um, there's worse yeah, things, right? Because I mean, he had a lot of books written about him i imagine from quite a few you know, yeah but he's very supportive of like that, that stuff he's very supportive yeah. of that stuff but he really listen he really he said he really enjoyed it and i believed him and 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 that's a it, one of the many nice things about writing a book is you get things like that and uh it, it's um yeah it was a thrill of course it was yeah so the the book is called again to be someone uh, it's not just about the jam. It is just about being obsessed with a band, which, you know, most people can relate to that. It's, uh, it is honestly brilliant. I loved it. Um, Thank you. And I'll be yeah. telling people about it. And uh, and just just to sum up, what if if you was just chatting to somebody, I'm sure you do this, and you were talking and the, the topic of the jam came up, say they're a bit younger or they're just like, oh, yeah, I've heard a couple of tunes. They don't really know the jam. How... 
you don't have to, but how would you kind of, in summary, try and tell them how great the jam were, how why they meant so much, and why you should, you don't have to listen to them, but why you would recommend they love the jam? Well, I suppose... I suppose what you do really, it's it's hard. The, the hardest thing I found with this book was describing feelings about music and about lyrics, you know, because I, I, I'm not that keen on, on music analysis or, or analysis of yeah. art generally, really, in the same way that we do comedy. And, you know, um, if somebody said, why would you recommend Ian Stone? you'd say, oh, because he's funny, right? He knows what he's yeah. doing and he's really funny and he, he, you know, and he talks about politics or whatever you would say. But the main thing would be, oh, he's funny, right? In the same way that I think with the jam, that's assuming you do think I'm funny. <laughs> but I know you do, it's all right. <laughs> but as, with the jam, I'd say listen to some of the tunes. It's, I mean, it's the only way really to get a proper connection with any artist is to, to look at what they do and listen to what they do. Um why why would i why would i recommend them just cuz john weller paul's dad said the best fucking band in the world is what he said at the yeah. time and that's what i felt that's what i felt then yeah you can't argue with paul weller's dad can you well no you don't want to argue with his dad no no, no he was a quite a tough looking guy actually john weller uh, but he and and i liked the fact that he introduced the band that was something else as well I really it's like a great that, but touch. I, I've never seen it's, that. It's hard. It's it's hard really to describe your feelings about music. Uh, yeah. I mean, I hope they came across in the book, but I it just definitely did. I just I connected with them in a way that at the time I hadn't really connected with anything else, and uh, and now I mean anything else. I'm not just talking about music, and and I mean I suppose football was the other one, but um, that's a slightly different sort of thing going on there, but. Yeah, they 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 spoke to me in a way that I hadn't really been spoken to before. And if somebody was asking me whether they should listen to them, I said, "Well, listen to them, and hopefully you'll get the same feeling." Perfect. I think you nailed it there. Thanks, man. A podcast from producer Paul Dakota UK.